If you have your Bible out, we're going to be reading Romans chapter 12, looking at verses 9 through 21. This is the Word of God, and we're going to read it out loud, and then we're going to pray together and dive into our teaching. So Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but be, give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come here and we want to worship you. We want to worship you for the God that you are. And we've sang this morning that all we have is your son, Jesus Christ. That hallelujahs are supposed to be offered up to him. Praises and all adoration is supposed to be offered up to him. We've heard about the great love that you have for us in Jesus as well. That nothing can separate us from that love. And we also sang about how you are the God who is exalted. And God, that is just true of who you are. And we pray that you, God by your spirit, would now come and meet us as we look through this passage that you would teach us this morning, that you would really transform us and change us more into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ, and that you would build us up in maturity. And so we can follow Jesus, knowing all the truths of your faith and continue to grow as we await his uh, return to earth to come and judge the living and the dead. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So Howard Thurman, Howard Thurman, uh, I shared this uh, about a month ago, Howard Thurman in 1947, uh, he was invited to come and speak at, Vander or, sorry, at, at Harvard University. And if you know uh, Howard Thurman, he came to speak on what was his specialty, which was the African-American spirituals. These are songs that were sung by black African-American slaves in the American South, songs that some of us are familiar with, some songs like Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, and songs like Steal Away to Jesus. And Thurman, in this lecture, called attention to the fact that many, if not most, of those songs, most of those songs were all about heaven. They were about eternal life. And in his lecture, he commented that they sung about heaven in sharp contrast to the dimly lit cabins with which they were familiar. They're singing of perfection and beauty and truth and goodness. For those singing those songs, heaven was as intentionally personal 
as the facts of their own experience. For here at last was a place where a slave was counted in and treated with great dignity. These men and women were trapped in physical pain and crushing poverty and what enabled them to persevere and on occasion even to sing was that they had a living hope as real to them as their own present experience. See, in other words, what Thurman was saying is, hey, with their eyes fixed on heaven, the glory of the reality of eternal life, these African-American Christians and slaves brought their hope of eternal life in the future into their present reality. Heaven, therefore, was not simply just a future aspiration and a hope, but instead, it was something that could be lived into now in their present experience. And that experience, by the way, it's not just exclusive to African-American slaves in the past. Paul actually has been telling us, Paul, who's the author of this letter to the Romans, Paul's been telling us over the past several weeks that that future reality of heaven is not reserved exclusively for the future, but as followers of Jesus, we can actually begin to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven now in this world. I like the way that Sinclair Ferguson put it. He said that we can live lives that belong to the culture of heaven, yet are lived out in the culture of the earth. So what Ferguson and the African-American spirituals kind of gesture toward is a Venn diagram. You can think of it as a Venn diagram, right? Imagine it in those terms. You have one circle over here, and that's our present reality. But there's this other reality of eternal life with Jesus, of the citizenship and the culture of heaven. And we, as followers of Jesus, live in the overlap, knowing that Jesus has brought heaven down to earth, and we can live as if heaven, the culture of heaven, is a reality now, and we can live in that reality in the cultures of this earth. And if you were with us last week, we looked at Romans chapter 12, and we walked through several of these verses, and we saw as we live in the culture of heaven, that changes us profoundly in our personal behavior. But not only that, it spills over into how we relate to one another as followers of Jesus in community, the family of God together. And today... Paul picks up on that same line of thought and he says, hey, that also changes how we relate to our enemies. That as followers of Jesus marked for eternal life, when we live for heaven, that'll change the way that we interact even toward those we disagree with, even toward those that we hate, even toward our enemies. And so Paul has two commands for us this morning and you can see it actually beginning in verse 14. But before we dive directly in, I want you to notice, if you have it open in front of you, notice how Paul takes all of these verses. If you look at verse 14, 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21, notice how Paul emphasizes his point, right? When I'm trying to emphasize a point to my children, by the way, I say things like, hey, children, never, ever, ever, do not ever draw on the wall. Or, hey, Never, ever, ever dive headfirst into the shallow end. Or never, ever, do do not ever eat a dead moth that you find under your bed. It happens, by the way. Trust me. And observe, observe what Paul says in verse 14, right? Paul says, when those persecute you, do not curse them. Do not, emphatic. 
Then verse 17, he begins, repay no one evil for evil. Do not do it. Verse 19, beloved, never, ever avenge yourselves. And you'll notice, while Paul here uses three separate commands, right? Do not, do not, do not. He's really emphasizing one main point. There's a core to what he's saying. And you see that in the first half of verse 21. Paul says all these three commands can be summed up in this way. Do not be overcome by evil. That's the essence of what Paul is saying in response to our enemies. Do not be overcome by evil. That is, as followers of Jesus... Retaliation, revenge, and reprisal are absolutely forgiven. And I find this really interesting, by the way. Did you notice in those verses that we just read, did you notice Paul ever used the word if? See, Paul never says, Paul never says, if you are persecuted. Paul doesn't say if a situation arises where evil is directed your way. And Paul never says, if You should receive hostility and want to seek vengeance for yourself. No, Paul says, hey, persecution, evildoers, evil itself, and enemies are not something that are a possibility in following Jesus. He says, no, they're an inevitability. That as followers of Jesus, suffering, trial, opposition, and resistance are part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus this side of heaven, they should be expected. Uh, it reminds me of this story of Sylvester Kremicki. Some of you might be familiar with that name. Sylvester Kremicki was, uh, well, he was a lot of things, but he was most known for being a politi- uh, political prisoner during the Soviet, uh, the Soviet rule over his hometown of Slovakia. And during the rise of the Soviet Union, Kremicki decided, I actually want to go into the mission field. So what he decided to do is he decided to be ordained by a local congregation, and he went and he served as an evangelist on many of the campuses in and around his neighborhood. And in doing this, you know, he was teaching a lot of his friends, and he was teaching a lot of people who he didn't even know. But then something happened. In 1951, the Soviet Union decided that every single person in his region would have to serve in compulsory military service for the Soviet Union. And this created a real inward tension for Kremicki because he believed that the Soviet Union was a purveyor of evil as he saw it. And so in resisting, he put himself in the crosshairs of the Soviet Empire and one night in 1951... He was arrested by the secret police in the middle of the night with only his friends and a few close family members who witnessed it. And after he spent three years in Russian prison, he was finally given a trial and he was sentenced to 14 years in prison for high treason. And those who witnessed his captivity by the secret police, they were asked what happened to Kremicki as he was being arrested. And Kremicki said, or, or, or the witnesses said, quote, When the secret police arrested him, we were surprised. Instead of resisting or yelling for help, all he did was laugh. He laughed. And when asked later about the arrest, Kremicki said, I laughed because I understood that I was being given the gift of suffering for Jesus. I was being given the gift of persecution. So you can hear that posture 
and that expectation that persecution is going to come his way. We actually sing about this quite often. Everybody know the song Amazing Grace, right? It's like the Don't Stop Believing by Journey of the church world. (laughs) And you know the second stanza, right? The second stanza is, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me here thus far, and grace will lead me home. Do you hear that vocabulary? Danger, toils, snares, persecution, suffering, evil, enemies, all of those words, whether it's Kremicki, John Newton, or Paul himself, all are stated in such a way that persecution is not conceptualized as an if, it's, a, it's an essence. It's not an if, it's to be expected. Now, a good question to ask ourselves is when you speak of your faith in Jesus, when you speak of following Jesus and the work that he's done in your life, are these words that you draw upon in order to describe your faith in Jesus? Do words like suffering and persecution, enemies, danger, do these words come out because you expect them as a follower of Jesus? And are they made as kind of a statement of part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus this side of heaven? I found this fascinating, by the way. Uh, In the year 2000, there was an author. His name was Christian Smith. And Christian Smith is a sociologist at the University of Notre Dame. And in 2000, he conducted an extensive study of American teenagers, over 3,000 American teenagers. And regardless of their denomination, regardless of where they were at spiritually, he asked them questions about their view of God and spirituality itself. And he came up with a summary of what it is that American teenagers believed. And he described it as this. He said, the baseline religious belief of American teenagers can be summarized as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's moralistic in that the belief is God just wants me to be a basically good person. He wants me to be a nice neighbor and be a good citizen. And It's therapeutic because the purpose of religion, the purpose of following Jesus is to make me feel better, to feel more well-adjusted. And God is also deistic, meaning, yeah, he created the world, but, you know, he doesn't intervene in the day-to-day things that go on in our day-to-day lives. God is a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic God. And as you read this study, what Smith found is that the words, the vocabulary, that many of these American teenagers used to describe their faith, they were almost completely devoid of words like suffering, hardship, persecution, and perseverance. They almost never appeared when people described their faith. Instead, in describing their faith, they relied almost exclusively on therapeutic terms and phrases like comfort, feel, acceptance, nice, and happiness. One writer, in commenting on this study, said that if our young people have been taught the faith at all, it has been a Christianity without tears. And so again, I think it's appropriate to ask ourselves, what do we expect as those who follow Jesus? Do we expect, as what Paul seems to expect here, do we expect that suffering, persecution, trial, dangers, toils, snares, that these things are going to be part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus this side of heaven? Because it's interesting, Paul does not mention if, he says these things should be expected. And so Paul in these 
three verses, verses 14, 17, and then in verse 19, he says, when we face evil, when we face enemies, he says, in summary, do not be overcome by evil. And he says the three emphatically, do not curse, do not repay, do not avenge yourself. John Stott, who was an Anglican minister, said that as it, come, as it pertains to the church in Rome, and every church for that matter, Paul tells us here, we must treat our enemies in spite of our inborn tendency toward retribution. And you know that inborn tendency, right? Because we all have it. That inborn tendency to do tit for tat, eye for eye, this for that, it comes naturally out of us, doesn't it? In fact, I was at Chick-fil-A just the other day, and I was sitting, reading a book very quietly, very peacefully, and these kids come running out of the play area. And one of the kids, it was a young girl, we'll just call her Sue, I don't remember her name, but Sue comes up and she says, oh my goodness, Bob, my brother, Bob just kicked me. And so the mom, curious about this, goes back into the play area, she pulls Bob out and says, Bob, did you kick your sister? And Sue says, or, or Bob says, well, no. And she says, well, did you kick your sister? And he says, well, yeah, but it was an accident. And then he says, and, and she scratched me. Well, Sue, did you scratch Bob? Well, yes, I scratched Bob, but it was on accident. And this will teach you two things, by the way. First, we do have an inborn tendency toward retribution. Second, all kids are liars. <laughs> that is an unassailable fact. Kids are liars, and we have an inborn tendency to lie. William Shakespeare even picks up on it. William Shakespeare once wrote, If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? Just as common as it is to prick somebody and blood flows out, so it is you step on my foot, I am going to step on yours. And now, you have to realize that actually this tendency of ours to seek retribution, part of that is actually healthy. In fact, Paul said in Romans chapter 2, if you've been tracking along in our series in Romans, this was a while ago, but Paul says that this desire for retribution and this desire for justice actually shows something profound about us. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2 that when the Gentiles, that are those who are not religious people, these were not followers of, of God, when Gentiles who don't have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. See, what Paul was saying there is that made in the image of God, we all have the law of God written on our heart, and as such, we want to see justice done when somebody is wronged. We want to see the scales of justice balance out. This is also true in the Old Testament. God, when he established the nation of Israel, he said, justice is to be done as my representatives on earth. You are to treat every situation in strict justice. And there God commands the people of Israel through Moses, saying, if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, Wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So see, what both of these passages illustrate is that our inborn tendency for retribution is actually 
in part, good. It's actually a sign that God's law is written on our heart. We want to see the scales of justice evened. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Let me ask you, on September 11th, did you want justice? Did you want justice for those who flew a plane into the World Trade Center and killed almost 3,000 innocent Americans? Did you want justice for those people, those perpetrators? Did you want justice for that act of intolerance, that act of terrorism, that act of religious extremism? Did you want justice or did you want something else? Because I guarantee if you're anything like me, the last thing you wanted was justice. What you wanted was revenge. You wanted to repay evil for evil. You wanted to win. If you're anything like me, you noticed that you wanted to pass over the line of justice and enter the realm of vindication and revenge, taking it into your own hands. You know, a good way to kind of illustrate this, anybody ever seen the 007 movies? That's right. You can raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. Shame on you. Shame on you all. Um, you remember the, the, the movie GoldenEye, right? GoldenEye, the one with Pierce Brosnan. And the, the ending scenes in that, what happens to the two villains, there's Alex, Alex Trevelyan and Boris Grishenko. Alex Trevelyan and uh, James Bond, they're fighting on this big antenna needle that's pointed up into the sky. And below them, a almost 300, 400 foot drop is this massive concrete basin that was once filled with water. And Grishenko, uh, or sorry, uh, Trevelyan and Bond, they're wrestling on the top of this needle, and then all of a sudden the needle flips over uh, onto the top of its head. And Trevelyan starts to fall 300 feet down from the sky, and all of a sudden, boom, splat right on the back of his neck. And now I'm not a medical expert, but I think that would kill you. It didn't in 007, because something else had to happen. All of a sudden, boom a big massive explosion that Trevelyan watches as this needle that was once pointed into the air starts hurling toward the ground 300 feet above him until he's screaming for his life and with his mouth open the needle that was above him penetrates through him and goes through his mouth into the basin right below him. Yeah! <laughs> Woo! Right? Now that's entertainment. And that's not even it. Because the secondary villain, who is Boris Grishenko, he's watching all this happen. He's the secondary villain. He's like, finally, I won. I defeated Alex Trevelyan. But then an explosion happens behind him. And he's watching, cheering on as this happens. But all of a sudden, these tanks of liquid nitrogen get exploded and they flow out in this torrent. And with his arms up, he's frozen solid by liquid nitrogen. And again, that's just good entertainment, isn't it? Because it would be deeply unsatisfying watching those movies if Trevelyan was arrested and he was brought and given a speedy trial under the Sixth Amendment and he was sentenced to a fair trial where he was given a competent attorney, you would not buy a ticket for that, would you? No, you would not. And the reason is, is because in our heart of hearts, when it comes to our enemies, we do not really want an eye for an eye. We want an arm and a leg for an eye. We do not want tooth for tooth. We want a life for our tooth. We don't want to see the scales of justice balance. We don't want justice at all. We want revenge. Revenge on our enemies. You know, I, I think about this. This was true of me even when I, almost as, 
early as I can remember. I remember the very first game I played hockey. I was a goalie, and it was the very first game I was the starting goaltender. I gave up three goals in the first period. So as the period ended, my coach looked me in the eye and said, hey, we got to take you out. we got to put in Marco. And I still have a dartboard with Marco's face on it, by the way. No, but in all honesty, even as Marco went into the game, and I'm crying, I'm literally crying on the bench, I'm thinking, hey, I don't want Marco to get a serious injury, but if he let in four goals and he got a minor injury, like, you know, a deep bone bruise or something by getting hit by a puck, I'd be totally fine with that. I wanted to win. I wanted revenge. And that's why Paul says in verse 21, he says, do not be overcome by evil, because to be overcome by evil is to bypass justice altogether. It's to bypass what is right, fair, just, and equitable, and it is to take vengeance and to seek revenge on our enemies. And, and don't get me wrong here, all right? And, and don't misunderstand Paul, because Paul in Romans chapter 13, and you can even glance there if you have your Bible open, you can even see what we're going to look at next week. Paul says, there is an appropriate place for justice, and it's not in our hands. It's actually been given to the civil authorities to demonstrate justice in this world. So don't misunderstand Paul. Paul is not saying we should completely turn a blind eye to evildoers and criminals. We'll talk about that next week. But what Paul is saying is very true. In our personal conduct, we are to never ever, ever, ever seek retaliation, reprisal, or revenge on our enemies. We are not to be overcome by evil. And just consider this, by the way. Nothing reflects the citizenship of heaven more than living out this principle, does it? Because when you think about it, when you think of Jesus, who was the king of the culture of heaven, when you think of Jesus... He, as the king of heaven, when he came into the cultures of this earth, he never hit back in word and deed. Jesus never insisted on retribution or, in, or for just, injustice in the face of evil. Jesus never sought revenge or retaliation on us, even though we were his enemies. Jesus was never overcome by evil. In fact, Jesus himself even went so far as to be falsely charged, falsely crucified, and falsely executed by his enemy. He never returned tit for tat, this for that. Jesus allowed the scales of justice when he visited the cultures of this earth as the king of heaven to be completely out of balance. He was the only sinless one, and yet he was willing to be crucified for his enemies. So here's why Paul says this, verse 21. As followers of Jesus, retaliation, revenge, and reprisal are absolutely forgiven because our lives are to reflect in the culture of the earth, the culture of the king of heaven himself, the culture of Jesus. But notice, Paul doesn't leave it there this, as well. Notice the second half of verse 21. Paul says, don't leave it there. Do not be overcome by evil. He takes it a step further and he says, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. In other words, it's not enough to simply not do something. He said we have to positively do something for our enemies and we have to positively seek something for them. And how we do that, Paul tells us there's two things. The first is we have to trust God. We have to trust God and you can see that in verse 19. Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. 
but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And now you have to realize, Paul is not taking that verse just out of thin air. Paul's actually drawing this verse from the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy where Moses himself, who had just led the people of God out of captivity in Egypt, is wandering in the desert, and Moses writes this song. And he writes this song that speaks about the experience of Israel in the desert, where they're surrounded by their enemies, these foreign nations like the Moabites and the Amorites and the Hittites. And he's surrounded by them, and they're crying out to God, the God of heaven, God... We're surrounded by our enemies. They're defeating us. We're losing here. Don't you care? Enemies will destroy us. They're saying, God, they're winning. Won't you do something? Will you ever get us to the promised land, which you promised us when we were back in Egypt? Where are you? And it's in that context that Moses, singing this song, says, From the lips of God, is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine. I will repay. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees their own power is gone, and there is none remaining, bond or free. See, Paul uses this passage, this song of Moses, to illustrate this point, that we are in the same position as Israel. Israel, right, had one reality, didn't they? They had just been taken out of Egypt, and they were awaiting a promised land, right? And they found themselves in the middle, wandering in the desert, wondering, God, our enemies are winning. And we, as people who have been taken out of slavery to our own sin, Await the kingdom of heaven from God, surrounded by our enemies. And Paul is saying, hey, just as God was compassionate to Israel, even when it seemed like their enemies were winning, and just as God vindicated his people by defeating the Hittites and the Amorites and the Moabites and brought them into the promised land, so too God in Jesus Christ has compassion on us and he will vindicate us and our enemies. Even though it looks like we're losing, even though it looks like our enemies will conquer us, even when it looks like our enemies will win, God says, he has compassion on us. God says, trust me, trust me, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's one of the great things that we recited in the Apostles' Creed, right? That Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Can anything represent living in the culture of heaven more than trusting that Jesus will bring vengeance so we don't have to? We can trust that Jesus will make all things right so we don't have to insist that I was right here. We can trust God. We can let go of vengeance and revenge in this world because we know when Jesus comes again, vengeance will be shown and he will have compassion on us. He will solve all the wrongs done to us. He will reverse all the injustice done to us. So Paul says, hey, as we wait for that day, we got to trust in the Lord. We trust in God knowing vengeance is his. Jesus will return. But as we wait that day, Paul says a second thing 
that to our enemies, we have to actively serve and love them. That as we await the day when vengeance comes, we have to seek the active good to overcome evil with active good. That's what Paul says in verse 20. Paul says, hey, never avenge yourselves, but instead, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. I remember that movie, Jack Phillips, uh, or called Captain Phillips. It was the story of Jack Phillips, uh, or, or Richard Phillips, sorry about that. Richard Phillips. And it's a true story about in 2009, the Maersk, Alabama, which was this uh, cargo ship that would travel around the Horn of Somalia in Africa. This uh, ship was hijacked by three Somali pro- uh, pirates. And in the middle of that, in the process of that, in order to kind of buy time, Captain uh, Richard Phillips radios down to one of the people who are in the lower part of the ship who are working in the kitchen, and he tells them, turn off all the lights, break the lights, and take these glass water bottles and break them onto the ground so that when one of these Somali pirates who comes in, doesn't, who doesn't have shoes, he'll come in and he'll step on the glass. And so this happens. The Somali pirate walks into the kitchen and his feet are completely torn to shreds, so much so that the rest of the movie, he's limping and he's in agony, he's in pain. And as the movie progresses, you see there's this final scene, one of the final scenes, where Captain Phillips is sitting after being deprived of food for three days, after being abused, after being scorned, after being mocked. What he does is he looks this young man in the eye, this young Somali pirate who wants his life, and wants to kill him for a ransom of a million dollars. He looks this man in the eye, and he takes out a first aid kit, and he pours water on his wounds on his feet, and he begins to bandage his feet. And you see in that moment, in this true story, there's a breakthrough that happens. In seeking his active good, This breakthrough happens, something that goes beyond piracy, something that went beyond global trade, something that goes beyond international conflict. What you see is for a brief moment, evil is quenched. And Philip's enemy is changed. He's actually changed. And evil is overcome by good. You know the men who crucified Jesus, there was a Roman centurion. Roman centurion was a ruthless Roman soldier. And these ruthless Roman soldiers would watch people being crucified day in and day out. And as Jesus is being crucified, all of a sudden bystanders who are walking by are mocking Jesus saying, oh, if you're really the son of God, come down off the cross now. Save yourself. You saved others. Why can't you save yourself? And The centurion participated in the crucifixion of Jesus, actually nailing Jesus' hands and his feet onto the cross. They, even in this act of mockery, take a sponge and they dip it in sour wine, put it on on a spear and raise it up to Jesus in a mockery to give him sour wine. And then, as if that's not enough, in order to profit from Jesus, they cast lots for his clothes. They cast lots for Jesus' clothes so that they can take something from this man who's being crucified. And then as a final act of disgrace, they nail this sign above Jesus that says, King of the Jews, to ridicule him. This is your king, Jewish people. Look how weak and horrible he actually is. And Jesus, as he's being crucified, he cries out for something. 
for every person who's a bystander, including the centurion himself. Jesus, as he's being crucified and as he's taking his final breaths, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And again, a breakthrough happens. All of a sudden, this wonderful breakthrough happens that goes beyond Roman and Jewish conflict, that goes beyond religious debates and ethnic differences. The centurion, looking at the love of Jesus, who sought his active good, cries out looking at Jesus. And when the centurion saw him, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Truly this man was the son of God. Surely this was not merely the king of the Jews, a king belonging to the culture of the earth, but this was the king of the culture of heaven himself. No one else would act that way. No one else would. That's why Paul says, hey, when we follow the pattern of the culture of heaven, overcoming evil with good, loving our enemies, seeking their active good as we trust God, Paul's saying when we do that, verse 20, he says we, bur- we pour burning coals on their head, which that's just a Hebrew way of saying that a breakthrough happens. Evil is overcome and good conquers. Hard hearts are turned tender. Enemies become friends. Sinners become saved. Darkness turns into light, and the culture of heaven breaks through into the cultures of this earth. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, remember we started with Howard Thurman and his lectures that he delivered in 1947. Well, nearly 10 years after that, another prominent African-American pastor would rise onto the scene. And he started these series of bus boycotts in and around the area of Montgomery, Alabama. It was Martin Luther King Jr. And these bus uh, boycotts were prompted by Rosa Parks, who decided she wasn't going to give up her seat to another white person and just a year short, or a year after these successful bus boycotts that happened in Montgomery, Martin Luther King Jr. preached a sermon on these words about loving your enemies. MLK wrote, I think this was the very center of Jesus' teaching, that hate for hate only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. If I hit you, and you hit me back, and I hit you back, and you hit me back, and go on and on, you see that goes on into infinity. It just never ends. Somewhere, somebody must have a little sense, and that's the strong person. The strong person is the person who can cut off the chain of hate, the chain of evil. Jesus was never overcome by evil. He was the strong one. Instead, he took our evil, the evil of his enemies upon himself. Jesus never sought vengeance on his enemies. Instead, he took the very vengeance of God that we deserve upon himself so that we might become children of God and that we might become citizens of the culture of heaven. And we can live that out here in the cultures of earth. Friends, do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. It's the way of our Savior, the crucified King of the Jews. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, God, what we said earlier in this service, that you so loved the world that you sent your only son, the one who came and was not overcome by evil, who overcame evil with constant perpetual good in our place, who lived a righteous life in our place, who took your vengeance on the cross and turned it into forgiveness of sins for us, your enemies. God, we pray that we would be people filled by your spirit in light of the great death and resurrection of your son, that we would be people who are not overcome by evil, who love our enemies, who seek their active good, and who conquer and quench evil, even in those that we call our enemies. God, we need your grace to do that. Give us tender, forgiving hearts. God, I pray that you, by your spirit, would change us deeply and profoundly to love our enemies as ourselves, because that's the only way. It's the only way that evil is stopped, and it's the only way that Jesus, your son, is glorified. Work that in us now, God, and help us sing to your glory.